The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Mike Rosen. Uh, He is a radio talk show host based at KOA in Denver, and he's just come out with a book called Reality, A Plain Talk Guide to Economics, Politics, Government, and Culture. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Jordan. Always good to talk to you. For For once, I'm on the interviewee end of this. Absolutely. I've been on Mike's show for many, many years. So let's just start a little bit. People who are not familiar with you, who are not from the Denver area, just give a little bit of your background of what you've been doing, and, and you also, at the beginning of the book, to kind of tell your history. So just kind of give us a, a shortened version of how you got to become the radio host uh, you've become here. I don't think there is a short version, but I'll <laughs> do my best. That first chapter is called From Brooklyn to Broadcasting, and it's, it's a mini-memoir, and I do mean mini. I get it in in 20-some-odd pages. But my background was not in broadcasting. I've got an MBA, and I was a corporate finance executive, did mergers and acquisitions, strategic planning. I was working for Samsonite Corporation in Denver, having come to Denver after I got out of the Army when I had been a a college dropout, (laughs) and then decided to go back to college and leave New York and come to beautiful Colorado. And um, after I finished up my schooling and got my MBA, I wanted to stay in the state since I had come to like it so much and wanted a company that was headquartered there, which was Samsonite. Well, Samsonite was participating in a White House executive exchange program where people from the private sector would spend some time working in Washington and the government. Some people from government would spend some time working in a corporation. Uh, I went from the private sector to Washington and took a job as special assistant for financial management to the assistant secretary of the Navy at the Pentagon which was a a fabulous, life-changing experience for me, sat in on all kinds of congressional hearings, did a lot of budget stuff for the Navy Department. And I would listen to a radio program driving home at night on a local station with Pat Buchanan, the conservative, and Tom Braden, the liberal. They go back and forth. This was a very inside Washington program, and since Washington is a company town and the company happens to be the government, had a huge audience, it occurred to me that, you know, I could, I could do something like this, and I wanted to bring my background in business and economics and the military into the media, which at that time was not just dominated by liberals, but almost the exclusive province of liberals. And after I went back to Denver at the conclusion of my Pentagon assignment, I knocked out a bunch of radio doors and talked about this program they had in Washington with a liberal and a conservative. I volunteered to be the conservative, pair me up with a liberal. One radio station said yes, that was in late 1980, and uh, I've been doing it ever since for 35 years. So how would you describe your show for people who have not heard your show? What is the essence of your show that you've been doing for 35 years? Well, 
it's a one-person show, although I started out doing that liberal-conservative combination. And I talk about issues in politics, public policy. I, I lighten it up, too. I, have, I do a movie review to end the week on Fridays and talk a little sports. But mostly, it's, it's pretty serious talk. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a right-winger. I'm a, a mainstream conservative. Uh, I like to do a lot of interviews, and I also like to interview people with whom I disagree. I also invite callers who disagree to hop on the air, and, and the two of us can go back and forth. And uh, I've been doing it on KOA Radio, the big 50,000-watt clear channel station out of Denver for uh, just about 30 years. Very good. All right, let's get into some of the topics. So you separate uh, the book uh, into economics, uh, politics, culture, uh, government, things like that. So let's start with economics. This is a financial show after all. So okay. uh, you, you t- and, and the book actually is many of the columns – that you've written in the Denver newspapers. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, pa- I should explain that. The first chapter is called From Brooklyn to Broadcasting, but the rest of the book is a, a, a selection of the 1,600 or so columns I've written over the last 35 years. I've been writing for the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News and uh, a number of national publications as well, Trying to winnow that down to just under 200 columns, which I've done in the book, was not easy. I had to kill a lot of my darlings. And I've divided it up into a number of topic areas. But uh, unlike some books where someone would turn the page and be confronted with a a 60-page chapter on economics, which intimidated him, when you're writing a column for 35 years, you've got to write to a 650 or 700-word whole. And as such, this is easier, easier reading. You don't have to go through an entire chapter. You can digest it in smaller pieces. But I combine eight or ten columns on a similar topic into the various sections. And uh, since I talk about economics a lot on this show, I start with that section on economics and try to, try to uh, rebut some myths, one of which is very popular. You hear people on the left saying the rich don't pay their fair share of the taxes. Well, I've even got a table and some graphs where I deal with that, and it turns out that the top 10%, according to adjusted gross income, actually pays about 70% of the total individual federal income tax burden. Uh, If that's not their fair share, I wonder what is. Would it 100% satisfy some people on the left? Anyway, I I talk about that kind of thing and and, uh, set aside some longstanding demagogic myths. So maybe describe to the audience why you think supply-side works. There's a lot of criticism of it. For example, Reagan cut cut tax rates dramatically. Um, The economy recovered, but the deficit ballooned as well. People said... Uh, cutting taxes would pay for itself, and they would say, well, just look at how big the deficit got, so supply-side didn't work. What is your retort to people who say supply-side doesn't work? I actually have a couple of columns that zero in on exactly that. Uh, What Reagan proposed and what Congress went along with, I'm glad you said the word rates, was a reduction in marginal income tax rates. And as promised, that reduction in marginal income tax rates actually increased the amount of revenue that the government received. And it shifted the burden of taxation away from lower-income people toward higher-income people who agreed to expose more of their income to taxation because it would be taxed at a lower rate. Uh, The reason we still had deficits was precisely because when Reagan submitted his budgets to Congress, which kicks off the budgeting process, the president's budget request has no force of law. 
And if you recall, Jordan, back then when Tip O'Neill, a Democrat, was Speaker of the House, which had a Democrat majority, they would pronounce Reagan's budget request dead on arrival. In fact, the Congress spent far more than Reagan asked for every year on the spending side uh, regarding domestic spending, and it did, in fact, get revenues that were greater than what had been uh, racked up before. But because Congress refused to cut back on spending, we continued to have deficits. Also, when Reagan took office, he inherited a terrible economy from Jimmy Carter with inflation going through the roof. And it, it took us a couple of years to get back to a growth economy. But it wasn't because of Reagan's budget requests that spending went up. It was because Congress exceeded his budget requests. And there was another example of supply side in the 2000s when President Bush cut tax rates in 2003, and again, the deficit exploded, but you're saying supply-side worked anyway. Those have been two of the big tests in the last few decades. Well, supply-side has to do with the revenue side of the budget, because so much of the budget now is on automatic pilot, committed to the various entitlement programs, and also committed to spending whatever we have to to cover interest on the national debt. The, the tax rate side of it is, is only half of the equation, and actually less than half of the equation. So you can't blame... Uh, increasing incentives, which is exactly what supply-side tax rate cuts do, by increasing the prospect of a higher return on work savings and investment. Uh, if they deliver what's promised, that is, more revenue rather than less because of the, the real economic stimulus associated with them, uh, you can't blame that side of the equation for spending that keeps, keeps increasing. So uh, right now, in, in the congressional, the uh, presidential politics we have going on, you've got pretty much all the Republicans are saying we should cut tax rates, to, uh, um, lower uh, rates, and get rid of deductions and credits and all kinds of special things. On the Democratic side, Clinton and Sanders basically say you have to raise tax rates dramatically to soak, soak the rich, in effect. What would be the difference in the econ economic uh, ter uh, results of those two different policies going forward? Well, as much as I don't approve of Hillary Clinton, I don't lump her together with Bernie Sanders, who is a, a socialist lunatic. <laughs> he, he, wants to, he wants to bring in a, a marginal income tax rate above 90%. Uh, imagine if you're considering risking some capital in an investment, and you are told that even if this investment pays off, we're going to take away 90% of your profits, uh, and you'll have to settle for 10% of what you actually earned after taxes, of course, still taking the risk that you might lose. This is idiotic. It's as if incentives don't matter. What a number of the Republicans are proposing, and there's some different flavors in there, but they're pretty much moving in the same direction. They're talking about exposing more of your income to taxation by eliminating exemptions and deductions, which is part of what Reagan did, too, I should note, and then offsetting that with a lower marginal income tax rate. Now, keeping in mind that the bottom 50% of the population only contributes about 2.5%, only pays about 2.5% of the total federal income tax burden, uh, none of the Republicans are proposing raising taxes on lower-income people. Now, even with a flat tax or various other versions of graduated income tax rates that are lower, uh, they would still exempt lower-income people from paying any federal income taxes. But by simplifying the tax code and increasing the prospect of a higher after-tax return on your investment or on your work, 
this is the kind of real economic stimulus, unlike Obama's uh, so-called stimuli that uh, resulted in the, the weakest uh, seven years of growth after a recession that we've seen in the history of the country. Uh, while I might favor, at the margin, uh, one of the Republican candidates' plans versus the other, uh, they're all moving in pretty much the same direction. So what would be the impact? Say Clinton got in. She's talking about raising the capital gains rate to the same rate as the income rate to 39.8%. What would be the impact of that on the economy? Well, it kills incentives for the reasons I've just talked about. Mm -hmm. You care about your after-tax return on investment, not your pre-tax return on investment. And I should note that Hillary ought to take a page out of Bill Clinton's book. When Bill Clinton advocated for and got from Congress an increase in the top marginal rate from 35% to 39.6%, he also went along with a reduction in capital gains tax rates. Actually taking capital gains tax rates down, and during the Clinton administration, when Congress went along with that, you'll also recall that we finally had a, a balanced budget, which incidentally was never part of Clinton's official budget submission. Uh, he and his, his OMB people were the most surprised people in town when we started running surpluses. We had the dot-com boom, the, the, the tech boom. Uh, we had money coming in after the SNL crisis. Uh, we had a reduction in defense spending uh, because of what they called the peace dividend. All these things created a perfect storm that produced more revenue and a surprise surplus for a few years. But part of that was because people agreed to expose more of their capital gains to taxation because the capital gains tax rate was reduced rather than increased. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Mike Rosen. Uh, he is a talk show host at KOA in Denver. His new book is called Reality, a Plain Talk Guide to Economics, Politics, Government, and Culture, which you can get at Amazon.com. We'll be back after this. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune into Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. The Leadership Hour explores what it takes to become a leader who inspires. Inspirational leaders drive higher creativity, lower turnover, and better quality work. Yet few understand their impact on others. We are blind to what we do and don't do well. Training can help, 
but only if we know our blind spots. To hear strategies for becoming an inspirational leader, join Christine Cowan Gascoigne on the Leadership Hour, where leadership and inspiration intersect. Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Mike Rosen. He's a talk show host in Denver on KOA Radio and has been so for 35 years. His new book is called Reality, a Plain Talk Guide to Economics, Politics, Government, and Culture. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Thank you, Jordan. Now, another uh, part of your book is about monetary policy and monetarism. You're a big believer in what Milton Friedman uh, proposed. And how is that different from what we've seen over the Federal Reserve policy the last few years? And what is going to be the implication of that? Well, Milton Friedman, of course, was one of my intellectual heroes, and uh, I was proud to have had him on my show as a guest on several occasions. And he didn't do a lot of talk radio, but uh, he and I had met. As a matter of fact, I, I met Milton along with his wife, Rose, who co-authored Free to Choose with him. Uh, and uh, what, what Milton Friedman advocated as a, as a monetarist was a stable and predictable Federal Reserve policy regarding the Fed's monetary policies, uh, not trying to uh, manipulate the economy with interest rate or uh, or rapid or or uh, declining money supply growth, just steadying the course and let the economy take care of itself. Uh, the notion that some geniuses at the Fed can uh, avoid recessions. And, and serve their, uh, their conflicting goals, which I should note were imposed by Congress recently, not from the beginning of the Federal Reserve Act. Uh, once upon a time, price stability was the mission of the Fed regarding monetary policy, and then full employment became part of their charter. Well, sometimes those two things conflict. You remember the, the Phillips curve yes. that claimed a, a trade-off between um, unemployment and uh, interest rates, uh, uh, and, and I, I should say unemployment and, and the, the consequence on interest rates of inflation, uh, except that when Ronald Reagan was elected, inheriting the terrible Carter economy, suddenly the Phillips curve went out the window when we had not only an, a recession, but a huge increase in, in inflation at the same time. So a lot of people uh, misapply Milton Friedman's positions on this, but in essence, he didn't want to put the Fed in the position of trying to control the, co- the economy with monetary policy. Just have price stability and uh, a predictable, predictable Fed policy on interest rates and money supply. And I go along with that. So let's so take that what Milton Friedman said to what's been happening the last ten years, with the Fed Reserve brought rates down to zero, kept them there for a very long time. They moved them up a little bit. But basically, they've been creating trillions of dollars in money supply, and this is happening around the world, in Europe, and Japan, and China. Central banks around the world are printing tons and tons of money. Uh, what would Milton Friedman say about that, and what do you think is wrong with what all the central banks in the world have been doing? Well, their, their interventions are misallocating economic resources. 
the stock market has been performing better than the economy uh, precisely because interest rates are so artificially low. It forces people into equities who might otherwise go into other areas. Uh, the One of the victims of that, of course, are older people who are planning their retirement thinking that they could protect their principal, live off their interest, getting 5 or 6% on certificates of deposit, and now they discover they can get one half of 1%, and suddenly they're eating up their principal. Uh, it hasn't produced the desired results, and if some economic genius with manipulations of monetary policy could produce economic growth, uh, then Paul Krugman ought to go to North Korea and make it the most prosperous economy in the world. So what would, let's make you the Fed Reserve Chairman here, and let's take you to 2008, where everything's collapsing around you. Now, what they actually did is they lowered interest rates dramatically. Uh, they flooded the system with money to kind of save it. What would you have done as a Freedmanite uh, in the middle of a financial crisis like that as Federal Reserve Chairman? Well, the Federal Reserve is the banker's, is the banker's bank. And uh, I would not have, have had a complete laissez-faire approach and allowed one financial institution after another to crash. Uh, that's not what the Fed is supposed to do. So what was called the, the bailout, which wasn't uh, a, a universal bailout, as you know, some investment banks were allowed to, to fold. Uh, when we created that uh, 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 resolution, uh, uh, tarp, what we tarp. call it, <laughs> the... Right. the during the SNL crisis, it was the Resolution Trust Corporation, and then we called it during during the mortgage crash. Uh, the tarp, you the can tarp. help me out. The TARP. That's right. TARP. The, the Troubled Assets Relief Program. That's Thank right. you very That's much. Right. Uh, I, I think that was a good idea, and as you know, we've we've recovered uh, we've recovered those loans with interest. Uh, so the kind of root canal um, approach of just letting the the free market run its course wouldn't have been tolerable politically to the American public. So I don't fault the Fed or the Treasury Department for that. But the Fed now has become the borrower of last resort. And these terrible deficits that have been run by the Obama administration, which have produced a very weak economic recovery, uh, have not delivered the promised goods. And uh, the Fed is, is scooping up all of those deficits by buying the government bonds. Uh, when people are led to believe that China is holding all our debt, they're led to believe something that isn't true. The last time I looked, uh, China, China held about uh, 10% of, uh, of federal debt held by the public. And I think uh, Japan was second with 9%, and, and Canada was a close third. So it's not as if the, the Democratic People's Republic of China are, are financing all of our deficits. Uh, the Fed has had a much bigger hand in it. But I wouldn't have run up those deficits in the first place. The, the so-called shovel-ready products, projects that Obama was talking about turned out not to be construction projects at all, and so much of that money was wasted on, the, on uh, bureaucratic bureaucratic malfeasance. You, you have a lot in your book about uh, where you say prosperity is not entitlement. So entitlements is what's been driving the deficits. What would you do today to rein in the entitlements uh, so that the deficits aren't as big? When you take a look at, at uh, the federal budget, and uh, you use the language of the federal budget, it falls into two main categories, mandatory programs and discretionary programs. The mandatory programs include mostly of entitlement spending, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, a lot of other means-tested programs, and interest on the national debt. This is not discretionary. This is mandatory. 
This takes up 70% of the entire federal budget. The other 30% is what's called discretionary spending, and about half of that is the Department of Defense. Uh, that's half of the 30%. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, we're underfunding defense these days. So there's no way to balance the budget with that other half of discretionary spending subject to cuts. It's got to come from entitlement spending. Now, the hope was that the economy would grow faster than federal spending. And if the economy grows faster than federal spending, the largest cohort of which is entitlement spending, then you could argue that we could grow ourselves out of our underfunding crisis. That is, if you look at this as a, as a fraction, in the, in the numerator, above the line would be entitlement spending, and in the denominator would be GDP, the economy. Uh, if that denominator goes, grows faster than the numerator, then entitlement spending as a fraction of GDP uh, begins to decline in percentage terms. That doesn't require huge cuts. Uh, I'm not as optimistic about that uh, that escape anymore. Uh, the kind of growth we would need, given the the, the already cooked-in increase in entitlement spending, doesn't seem to be on the menu right now. Uh, the public won't tolerate large cuts in actual levels of entitlement spending. But there are some things at the margin that we can do that would help, uh, such as raising the retirement age at a rate greater than we're raising it right now. That commission with uh, Alan Simpson and others uh, just kicked the can down the road. They addressed that issue, talking about increasing retirement ages, but way out into the future. Since people are living much longer, I think we need to do that more quickly. Uh, that would help a lot. Using a, uh, an inflation measure that is a more accurate measure of, of what retirees spend uh, than the consumer price index, which is what we use now, and going to some kind of a chain CPI, uh, that over the course of 10 and 20 and 30 years would save, would save a lot of money without requiring an actual cut in benefits. Uh, it's things like that that we need to, uh, we need to address. And, you know, the Bernie Sanders model is just to, uh, eliminate Social Security uh, checks for, uh, for for people with with greater incomes. Uh, wait a second. These are people that were forced to pay into Social Security all their lives, and if uh, if they were prudent and uh, and saved money so that they weren't living entirely on Social Security, now they're going to be punished for that prudence. While people who didn't defer compensation and didn't save any money for retirement will be rewarded. That, that strikes me as a moral hazard that I don't care for very much. Uh, in addition to that, if, if you're going to make Social Security payments means-tested based on your income and your wealth, are people going to have to file in addition to a tax return? Are they going to have to file a statement of net worth <laughs> to the IRS showing what their assets are, what their investments are, and what their liabilities are? Uh, is that the road we're going down? I'm, I'm sure this would... Uh, uh, this is something that would appeal to Bernie Sanders because it's closer to pure socialism. I just don't care for it. So these are relatively small things you're talking about as far as raising retirement age, the cost. No, it's, it's, they're not so relatively small when you compound that uh, by uh, the number of people who are collecting Social Security yes. and, and by the savings each year built on the savings of the prior year and, and, and on and on and on into the future. 
But taking a look at the bigger picture, Mike, uh, some people say we're headed towards a Greek-like situation where they just had massive entitlements and they basically hit a brick wall because the people paying for it, the Germans and so on, weren't willing to do it anymore. In the long run, are we, with the baby boom retiring more and more all the time, going to be hitting a brick wall that the entitlements are just not going to be able to be handled no matter how you change these small things? Uh, We could if we don't start making moves to, to change the trajectory right now. If you look at uh, debt held by the public as a percentage of gross domestic product and also look at the gross federal debt, which is a, a larger number, uh, the gross federal debt, of course, includes the money that one government agency owes to another. Uh, debt held by the public is, is what, uh, by the public in this case, it includes central banks of other countries and insurance companies and anybody else who buys treasury bills in, in large quantities. Uh, as a percentage of GDP at about 70% of GDP, uh, that's, it's not great, but it's manageable. Uh, when you get into Greece territory, you're talking about debt that's, that's 200% of gross domestic product. Uh, Japan is even in, in that neighborhood right now as well. Um, if, you, if you take a look at the Congressional Budget Office's long-term forecast, moving out 50 years, uh, we, are, we would be moving into that 150% of GDP uh, neighborhood, which is very dangerous turf. Uh, we're not there yet, given the current uh, level of entitlement spending. Uh, if we can keep it from getting any worse, we've got something that's manageable. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Mike Rosen. Uh, he is a, a talk show host at KOA uh, based in Denver, has been so for 35 years. His new book is called Reality, A Plain Talk Guide to Economics, Politics, Government, and Culture, which you can get at Amazon.com. We'll be back after this. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers 
shows together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Mike Rosen. Uh, He's a talk show host at KOA based in Denver. His new book is called Reality, a Plain Talk Guide to Economics, Politics, Government and culture, you can get it at Amazon.com. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Thank, thank you, Jordan. Uh, I thought you might you might find interesting since I also talk uh, philosophy of sorts in in my book. You, you've heard I had uh, one of my uh, one of my segments, which came from a column I wrote back in 2007, is called "The True Measure of a Society," and what I take on is an assertion made by progressives that goes something like this. You'll hear them say the true measure of society is how it treats the weak and the needy. Now, uh, superficially, this is a, a noble and nice-sounding platitude, but politically, its, it's foundational justification for the cradle-to-grave welfare state and its perpetual expansion. I, I, think, I think that that, that bromide, the true measure of a society is, is how it treats the weak and needy, is simplistic and absurdly narrow. You might say that how you treat the weak and the needy is one measure of a society. Fair enough. But that's hardly the only true measure. I mean, the promise of Marxism, after all, is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That's a Bernie Sanders kind of language. This so what sounds would be yours? seductive. What would be, instead of that, what would be your alternative, Mike? Well, it's not a question of alternative. It's a question of what other measures, uh, what other measures give us a, a good sense, an honest and accurate sense of uh, how good or how bad a society a society is. Um, that includes, but wouldn't be limited to, uh, a, a society's systems of governance, justice, law, commerce, commitment to freedom, individual rights its achievements in science, engineering, industry, technology, exploration, its military strength, religion, philosophy, literature, art, music, culture, medicine, health, education, scholarship, intellectualism, economic growth, wealth creation, standard of living, all of these things and more are measures of a society. For someone to claim that the only true measure of a society is how it treats the weak and needy is preposterous, and of course, it's a more prosperous economy that can be much better in its treatment of the the weak and the needy. So you can't put the cart before the horse. You can, uh, production must precede consumption. You can't consume what you haven't produced. But the the left wing utopians who can only deal with compassion and. Uh, and their notion of, of fairness, which in this case is equality of outcome, not equality of opportunity, uh, they sell a society short when they try to say the only true measure is how it treats the weak and the needy. Anyway, I expand on that in, in length in, uh, in the book. You remember Tevye in Fiddler yes. on the Roof? Yes. He said, he said there's no shame in being poor, but it's no great honor either. Poverty <laughs> is nothing to be revered. The poor want it least of all. That's why President Lyndon Johnson's declared war against declared war on poverty in, in 1964 
Well, uh, he wanted to alleviate it. Uh, Democrats and Republicans alike have vowed to eradicate what passes for poverty in America. But wait a second. There's a difference between absolute poverty, abject poverty, and relative poverty. The people who are statistically poor in this country live much better than most of the world's population. We're a rich society because of our market economy and the freedoms and incentives that people enjoy in this country. And that's what enables us not only to to spend mightily on entitlement programs, but to spend more than we can afford on entitlement programs. I just want to put that in perspective, which Very is what good. I do in part of the book. Now, you have a whole chapter, a whole part of the book called The Great Political Divide, where you talk about the left versus the right. So what could be done today about the, the country, which is so incredibly polarized in every way? The Congress, uh, the population kind of goes one way or the other. There seems to be very little middle ground, as there had been in the past. How can we get things done in this very polarized situation? What caused such dramatic polarization? I wish I had an easy answer to that. I don't. And I'm sorry to say that Donald Trump is one measure of that. And I am not high on Donald Trump, as you know. We've talked about that before. There was a column I, I wrote on, on the, the great political divide. And uh, what I started with was somebody's claim in a, in a letter to the editor who said, Congress has a very low approval rating. So what did we do? For the most part, we voted them back into office. What a nation of idiots we are. Now, that kind of thing uh, throws raw meat to people who think that that passes for wisdom, but it's, it's a sanctimonious pretense at wisdom, and it reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of the body politic and the dynamics of our two-party system. As to voting legislators back into office, if an incumbent isn't reelected, since we have a two-party system, minor parties are, are just a distraction. Some other Republican or Democrat would take that person's place. And in, in 90% of the congressional districts in the country, either a Republican or a Democrat will hold that seat. Only about 10% of the CDs in the country are really competitive. When it comes to the power of legislative majorities, I argue that party trumps person. It's not that we voted anyone back into office. There is no collective we. It's you and I and they. Some people voted some of those members of Congress into office, and other voters who strongly disagree with the first group voted some other members of Congress into office. And every winner, there was a loser who still got plenty of votes. Uh, when, when you take a look at those polls that show how unpopular Congress is, let me illustrate this. Uh, the public policy polling outfit, PPP, uh, had a, a poll which showed that only 9% in, in their survey, uh, only 9% uh, approved of Congress. Uh, Congress was less popular than other choices in that poll, including cockroaches, root canals, traffic jams, and colonoscopies. But what does that really mean? Well, Partisan Republicans and partisan Democrats aren't necessarily unhappy with legislators from their own party for whom they voted. It's the other party's legislators they disapprove of. So the disapproval of Democrats for Republicans and Republicans for Democrats is mathematically combined to produce that low approval rating for Congress as a whole. So if congressional Democrats, for example were to magically roll over and adopt the Republican agenda, the overall approval level of Congress would soar as Republicans and Republican-leaning independent voters suddenly tell pollsters they're delighted. 
while Democrats would still disapprove. Reverse the labels, you'd get a similar result for whatever that's worth. Different people approve or disapprove of Congress for different reasons. And the most common criticism is about Congress's partisan inability to agree and come together on legislation in the public interest. But yes. wait a second. Partisanship isn't the problem. Partisanship is a reflection of the public divide. And the reason there's partisanship is because of this huge divide over where we go from here. Bernie Sanders wants to raise taxes and increase spending. How do you compromise with that if you're somebody who thinks the tax rates are already too high and spending is too high? By only increasing it of half what Bernie Sanders wants? That's preposterous. How could there be anything but a partisan divide when there's such a huge difference right now between what one party and its coalition wants and what the other party and its coalition wants? But I think what people object to is the, the divide is so great. I mean, a good example would be Tip O'Neill and Reagan getting along and cutting tax the things that he did. They said that would be impossible today because Republicans will not go along with anything Obama wants. And Obama, as a result, is going ahead and doing all these things with the executive order, which the Republicans saying unconstitutional. A much greater right, let, me, divide let me stop you right the there because you, you make a great point. But here's my answer to it. Ronald Reagan was faced with a Democrat majority in the U.S. House for every single one of his eight years. As a matter of fact, he had a Republican majority in the Senate for six of his years, but the Democrats won the Senate over with a majority in his last two years. However, Ronald Reagan had something of a mandate because he won by such a huge majority. Ronald Reagan, however, faced with Tip O'Neill and the Democrats, compromised. He compromised all the time. It's this president who refuses to compromise. In his first two years, he had a Democrat majority in both houses of Congress. And uh, he, he, he uh, ran roughshod over the Republicans. In, in something as mammoth as Obamacare, uh, to completely exclude the Republicans from the process was unprecedented. Nothing uh, on that kind of a scale of government policy has ever been inaugurated in this country without some bipartisan report. He shut the Republicans out completely. That was 100% wrong, and it shows what a terrible governor, what a terrible chief executive he was. Now, after the 94 election, he lost his majority in Congress, and then he'd be forced to compromise. And even then, he refused to compromise, and as you say, tried to circumvent Congress with executive orders. This was terrible governance by Barack Obama, and Reagan was the, the exact, the, the model of the exact opposite approach. Do you, so do you think that could change? Say Trump or Clinton, the two leading Democrat, uh, candidates right now, became president. Do you think we could get back to some kind of a bipartisanship and compromise with either of those two in, pl in place? Uh, no, I think, uh, I, I think Hillary Clinton would, would uh, be a continuation of the Obama administration. Uh, of course, I'm a partisan Republican. Now, I'm hoping Donald Trump is not the next president of the United States. But uh, if, if Marco Rubio or even Ted Cruz, someone like that, is president, uh, rather, than, rather than follow Obama's model and be uh, an imperial president, I would certainly hope that the next Republican president would be much better when it comes to governance, working with the opposition party in Congress. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Mike Rosen. Uh, he is a talk show host at KOA uh, in Denver. He's been so for 35 years. His new book is called Reality, 
a plain talk guide to economics, politics, government, and culture. It's based on the many columns he's written over many years in the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. We'll be back after this. There are two types of leaders in business. Those who are nice, compassionate people. And frankly, they are the people who fail to get a lot done. Then there are those who can get everything done and so much more. But they are greedy, unethical, and self-centered. The Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks finds a way to use the best of both types of leaders to help you create a dynamic roadmap to success. Tune in every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. Great leaders today have certain capabilities that set them apart. These leaders have discovered transformational leadership. Now you can discover the same ideas, insights, and programs that have led them to success. Inside Transformational Leadership, hosted by Kate Ebner, is produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. We'll explore these stories and concepts every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Mike Rosen. He's a talk show host at KOA based in Denver. Uh, He's also got a new book out called Reality, a plain talk guide to economics, politics, Government and Culture, based on columns he's written for many years in the Denver newspapers. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Thank you. And you can also mention, Jordan, that people can get that easily at Amazon.com, and it's available in an ebook version if you're a Kindle type. Excellent. Very good. So you have a whole section here on the media, um, and since you've been in the media and a critic of the media, um, you say that there's a tremendous liberal bias on the media, yet other people would say, particularly radio today anyway, is completely dominated by conservative Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, all that kind of thing. So where, where is this media uh, debate going out here right now? All right, well, let me, let me respond to that. I've answered it many, many times. First of all, you ticked off a number of conservatives in radio, all of whom are dealing in opinion. And what they do is advertise as opinion. Uh, They're not reporters, and they're not newspaper editors. It's wonderful that we should have a vigorous debate between left and right in the opinion segments of the media. But when I talk about what I call, and I hate the term mainstream media, by the way, that conservatives use, the reason I hate that term is it conveys the false impression that the liberal media reflects the mainstream of public opinion when it's to the left of it. So I use a very clumsy term, but it's precise. The term I use is dominant, liberal, establishment, mass media. And every one of those words is essential. 
Uh, mass media speaks for itself. We're not talking about boutique media. We're not talking about National Review magazine on the right or the Nation magazine on the left. We're talking about mass media. Now you're talking about ABC, CBS, NBC. You're talking about the New York Times, the L.A. Times. Uh, you're talking about National Public Radio. Uh, you're talking about, P- uh, about uh, uh, PBS. Uh, these branches of the media that present themselves as reporting and as dealing in news, like ABC, NBC, or CBS, it doesn't matter which of those networks you watch, you're going to get the spin on the news presented as news, not opinion, that reflects the culture of their newsroom, which is liberal. Yes, there's conservative talk radio, and there's even uh, the Fox News Channel, which, which is conservative. Uh, its editing of the news reflects a conservative bias. However, ABC, CBS, and NBC combined have an audience of about 20 million people in their primetime news broadcast. The Fox News Channel has an audience of about 3 million people. Uh, it's not even close. Uh, interestingly enough, too, I'd say that Fox, even with its conservative bias in its news reporting, is closer to the political center than ABC, CBS, and NBC is. Fox is right of center. ABC, CBS, and NBC is farther left of center than Fox is right of center. And Fox even has a mixture of liberals who regularly appear on Fox, uh, including Juan Williams, for example, who came over from uh, uh, the public sector. Uh, so I say establishment as part of that dominant liberal establishment mass media because we're talking about the old media rather than new media. And the old media is the New York Times and television networks and uh, that kind of thing, uh, Time Magazine, a Newsweek, which hardly exists anymore. Again, liberal, liberal, liberal. And I say dominant because it's not 100% monopoly, but liberals dominate in the dominant liberal establishment mass media. Uh, in recent decades, conservatives have etched out uh, a greater share and I'm happy about that, but there isn't any question that the mass media is still dominated by liberals. On top of, of uh, the news element of the media, news and opinion, uh, throw in K-12 through education, dominated by liberals and the teacher unions, throw in higher education, dominated by a liberal professoriate, throw in Hollywood, throw in television, throw in social media, and it's amazing that any young people at the age of 21 or 2, when they, when they graduate from college, it's amazing that any of them are conservatives. They've been so indoctrinated from all of those sources for so many years. So what has been the impact of this uh, dominant liberal media, as you say? I mean, we've had the last election in 2014, the Republicans swept. In 2010, they swept. We've had Reagan come in. We've had Bush. We've had many more Republican presidents than Democratic. Why, why is it that with all this liberal media out there, that the country in many ways is quite conservative. Well, the country isn't quite conservative. It's not as conservative as it was in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected. But I'm not saying that the media absolutely brainwashes everybody and tells us what we're going to think, but they have a great deal of influence, which gives their side of the political spectrum an edge. Now, when it comes to uh, congressional elections, this is, this is the nature of, of our political system, and it's kind of interesting. Right now, I think there are 32 Republican governors out of 50 states. But those Republican governors are elected in lower population states. When you look at the difference, and by the way, there are more 
Republican legislators in the country at the state level uh, than there are Democrat legislators, although the Democrats dominate cities, which are population centers, including a lot of minorities, and uh, a demographic group that tends to, to favor Democrats. When it comes to a presidential election, however, it's a completely different story because of the way the Electoral College map sets up. Uh, you've heard of the Blue Wall. There are 18 states in the last uh, half dozen or so presidential cycles, 18 states that have voted for the Democrat, awarding the Democrat all of their Electoral College votes uh, over that period of time. That adds up to 242 Electoral College votes. You only need 270 electoral votes to win the presidency. The, de- the, the Democrats only need to win a couple of more states to lock up the presidency with the 242 they have in the bank. The Republicans can win more states than Democrats in a presidential election, but harvest far fewer electoral votes because they tend to be lower population states. States like New York and California and Illinois, which are solidly Democrat, uh, have a, a huge edge in tipping the electoral college vote scaled in favor of Democrats. Uh, those states are states that are not friendly to conservatives at all. And uh, while I, I concede that Democrats don't win every single election at the uh, congressional level or the legislative level on a state-by-state basis, they have a huge advantage going in. Yet you're a big supporter of the Electoral College. You have a, a, an essay in here in your book about why the Electoral College, Electoral College is a good thing. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. So you're just Even saying in, it, 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 it favors the Democrats, but you think it's a good idea anyway. Well, let me explain why. It's a little nuanced. Uh, even though I see this edge, what the Democrats and a number of leftist academics are trying to do is go to a national popular vote for president. Uh, that would hugely favor the Democrats. One advantage of the Electoral College is that your Electoral College vote, the number of votes you get in the Electoral College, is the total of the number of seats you have in the House and then two seats in every state, two seats in every state because of the two senators that you have. As such, the smaller states have a greater say, the way we count votes in the Electoral College, than the smaller states would have if we simply had a national popular vote, which would be overwhelmed by New York and California and Illinois. So, A, it's the lesser of evils, given what the Democrats are proposing, a national popular vote. But B, it's also more consistent with the form of government we have. We are not a democracy. We are a constitutional republic. We're a collection of 50 states and the District of Columbia that have a certain degree of sovereignty. And I like the idea that each state gets a voice in a presidential election. In 48 of those states... The Electoral College votes are divided on a winner-take-all basis. They're not proportional. So a state like Wyoming and Nevada uh, has its say and has, because of the, the two extra votes it gets for, uh, for its two senators, uh, those two votes are a, a sizable percentage of a small state's Electoral College count, while in California, with so many seats in the House, uh, the two votes it gets for its senators is a much smaller percentage. Uh, I, I want to reinforce the fact that we're a constitutional republic, not a democracy. 
And this surprises a lot of people. Do you know the word democracy appears not once in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, but in the Constitution, it does guarantee the people of this country a Republican form of government. That's with a small r, Republican. Mm-hmm. Indeed, very good. So in, in summing up, kind of what difference will it make to people to read your book and understanding politics, economics, all the things you've been talking about for so many years? Well, I've been writing a column, as I explained, for 35 years. The discipline of writing a column and being so concise as to get your argument uh, fitted into a 650-word whole uh, makes it much much more intense and, and easier reading than uh, reading through a rambling chapter. Uh, also, since I invite people who disagree to call in, both callers and guests, I've been able to hone my arguments over more than three decades. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that this book can influence people who haven't become fully confirmed in a political philosophy yet, on the one hand, and uh, also strengthen the understanding and the arguments that people who are reasonably conservative have. Uh, I've, I've used the example, if you've got that liberal brother-in-law of yours when you have family gatherings, that always wants to discuss politics, reading this book will arm you with some great arguments that you can use against him. Uh, I don't imagine for a second that uh, if Bernie Sanders were forced to read my book, it would move him one inch. He's so committed ideologically. But uh, this is something that I've found over the years that I've been doing radio and writing columns uh, has, uh, has resonated with some people who, uh, who have an open enough mind to, to listen to some reasonable, rational, logical, well-presented conservative ideas. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest has been Mike Rosen. As you can hear, he's got a lot of very interesting ideas and well, well put in his book, Reality, A Plain Talk Guide to Economics, Politics, Government, and Culture, which you can get at Amazon.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Mike. Thank you, Jordan. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management